So on this last Sunday of the year 2019, Scott has asked me to teach on this passage. So it's my pleasure to be up here. But before we get into the passage, I want to talk about uh, the idea of familiarity. Okay, Something is familiar. It's something that we have done over and over and over again. This is a good thing. God made us this way. We don't have to think about things, and so our brains can be thinking about other things. Like this morning, when you prepared yourself to come here this morning. Now, if you have slip-on shoes, you didn't do this, but the rest of you who had shoes that you had to tie, you didn't have to think, do I make it this way? Do I, the bunny goes through the hole? So, something, right? I, see, I thought, that I, I, I thought there was only one way to tie shoes. That was until I tied my shoes in front of one of my students, and that student was like, what are you doing? And I said, tying my shoes like all normal people do. That's not normal. You have three extra steps. You can do it so much easier like this. And she did this magic trick and got the same thing. This student was uh, empowered by this moment, and as she graduated, she handed me a gift. It was 22 Ways to Tie Your Shoes, a book that she had written for me. Including on the cover was a nice shoe with shoelaces to practice the tying. And I've gotten some good fun out of that. But we don't have to think about that. We don't have to waste brain power on how to tie our shoes every day. If this is a church you've been to before, you didn't have to think about how to get here. The only time we ever think about having to get somewhere that we go on a regular basis is when we can't get there the way we normally want to get there. We don't have to think, okay, I turn here. I mean, we don't have to even think about using our turn signals, and some of you need to, right? I know I need to sometimes. This is called muscle memory. Our brains are so amazing. God has made us with the ability so that we don't have to even think about it. We just do it. I love this as a coach, right? This is what we teach our our athletes. We teach them how to do free throws. I'm coaching junior high boys basketball, so pray for me. I have 30 junior high boys And I am the only coach. It's exhilarating and terrifying and amazing all at the same time. I get to coach my son, so it's even more special that way. But we train them how to do free throws. Because the last thing we want to be doing as a coach is like, okay, grab the ball. No, that line, don't go over that. Grab the ball and then put your hand in the basket, follow through, right? We don't do that. Because we don't want them to have to think. We want them to practice it so they don't have to think. Because junior high boys thinking is a scary thing. All right? So that when it's that moment in the game when all eyes are on you, you're standing there to win the final four, to win the national title. You don't have to think about bend your knees, elbow in. No, you don't have to think about that. You just do it. Isn't that amazing? God made us so we don't have to think through the thing that's the most important thing at that moment. Or the man or woman who is putting for the win and all eyes are on them and it's quiet. And it's a five foot putt. I mean, it's easy, right? There's not even one of those little things that gets in the way like at the golf courses, the mini golf courses, right? There's no slope or the water or that one that's like the hole that's at the top of the hill, right? That's impossible to get in. Just take the eight and move on. So we have that. That's a good thing. God made us that way, right? But familiarity can also be a bad thing, can't it? Like that day when you get up in the morning and you get out in your car and you start driving and you go to work and it's not a work day. Why? The car just drove itself there, right? Because you're so used to making those turns. Or for me, our dishwasher stopped working. Merry Christmas to us, right? Day after Christmas, it stopped working. And so we have to get a new one and it's not going to be delivered till next week. 
But yet I'll go over there to the dishes and start to wash them and open it. I did it this morning as I already had written this in my sermon. And yet I still went, oh, the stupid thing doesn't work, right? Apparently we put glass in it and it breaks and it gets in the bottom. It doesn't like that. So we do this all the time. I heard a funny story one time of somebody, and it's not me, so I'm not just saying this to be not me, but somebody told me a story about how they were talking to their wife on the phone and they were like, all right, love you, honey, bye. And then they got another phone call. It was their boss talking to them. Okay, love you, honey, bye. Click. Well, at that point, I think you need to probably go find a new job, okay? Because that might be a little hard to explain while you're telling your boss that he is honey and that you love him. So that would be an awkward situation to be in, but our bodies just go that way. And so this familiarity at times can be a bad thing. And today, we're going to sadly have to talk about how prayer has some, become something we've been very familiar with. It becomes rote. It becomes automatic. It's just something we do. I have a really good example of this. My littlest, Lincoln, who's sitting right back there, the cutest kid on the planet, and I'm not biased at all. Every single prayer he says, in the cutest voice, because, you know, he has to pray every time. He finally let his poppy pray at Christmas for the first time, which was nice because it was his house, which is ironic. But Lincoln will pray and he'll say, Dear Lord, help us to have a good day tomorrow, and thank you that we had a good day yesterday. Amen. That's how he prays every single time. It's super duper cute. And I know he really, really means it. But that's kind of how we get, right? We kind of just say the same things over and over and over again. I remember my father would always finish his prayers with the same four or five words. And he kept saying them so much faster and faster and faster that later in life we couldn't figure out what he was saying. After he passed away, my sister and my mom and me, we sat down and we're like, what did he, what was he even saying? And we kind of could piece it together because he'd said it so many times that he just didn't even think about it. He just said it every single time. Something about Jesus' name for your sake, amen. And it came out, Jesus' name, amen. And that, that's kind of how we do it, right? We, we, we say these things over and over again. The Lord's Prayer, which is what we're looking at today, we're looking at the shorter version of it. Luke's version is kind of a Sparks Notes version, a kind of a compact version, because he's wanting to teach us something. I'm hoping I can bring that out for you today. This is a famous prayer. People say it all the time. I once saw a video of a coach, and he was, he was getting after his players before the game, and he's like, we're going to go kill their bleep and bleep and bleepity bleep, right? And then he's like, all right, let's pray. And he gets down on a knee, and he says the Lord's Prayer. I'm like, I don't think that's how it's supposed to go, right? Or musicians before a show, whether they're Christian or not, they'll recite the prayer together. Is this just magic words that are kind of getting God on our side so that our show goes well and so that we win? Or what is it exactly? Are we using it rightly if we're just repeating these words? After all, it's, Jesus says, when you pray, say. So are these the magic words? Hmm. Hopefully I can answer that for you. Studies have shown that we pray less than three minutes a day. We find all sorts of time to do things for the Lord, but we can't pray. Praying in front of people, praying with people, praying by ourselves. We don't do it. And this creates a problem for us. This is a problem for our church because it blindfolds us to what may, and makes us unaware of the dangers around us. It gives us a false sense of peace and security when in actuality what we've done is we've presumed that we don't need the Lord for our help. See, prayer is not something that you're going to learn by this sermon. You're not going to learn it by a book. You're going to learn it by doing it. And so my goal for today is to show you, through what Jesus teaches His disciples, of why you should do it. And it has everything to do with who you're praying to. 
Now, don't get me wrong. There, there is an opportunity. We, we do need to learn, and we need to learn from those who know how to do it well. You know, just because you have a great singing voice doesn't mean you don't go get voice lessons. And the Bible is full of prayer lessons. 150 psalms. Every single one of them is some sort of prayer. If you can't find yourself in one of those 150, there's several hundred throughout the Bible. Not to mention Christian books by, by the score. So when Scott asked me to pr- teach this, I thought, oh, cool, this is going to be a how to pray. I kind of was like, Scott, I'm not so sure I'm the prayer warrior that you need up there. He said, well, just preach the passage. I said, okay. So I began preaching, Brent, looking at the passage, and I noticed something right off the bat. Jesus tells everybody to pray this way, and then no one in the Bible does it. Nobody, right? We have recorded prayers by Peter and Paul and James, and you can just go through. Even Jesus' recorded prayer. He doesn't pray this way. So I was like, okay, so it can't be that these are magic words. Maybe there's a structure to the prayer that we're supposed to follow. Well, you really have to kind of, to get it in there. It doesn't even follow that. So there's got to be something more. So I started digging even deeper. And as I was working on this passage, or more correctly, while this passage was working on me, I realized this is not a how-to passage. It's a who-to passage. This is not about how do we say certain words to get God to do what we want Him to do. It's who are we talking to? Who is this person, this, this God that we pray to? And that's what Jesus' point is here. Because prayer ultimately is very difficult. Your mind goes a hundred different ways. It requires discipline. It requires repeated use over and over again. And so we should follow somebody who knows how to do it. And that's not me. It's Jesus. And look what the disciples say. They say, Master, tell us. Lord, tell us. So, my invitation to you today is we're going to sit at the feet of the Master who has been praying to God for all of eternity and see how He does it. So my main point, so that you're not confused and so you get it because I'm going to hammer it over and over again. Jesus wants us to know the Father the way that Jesus has known the Father for eternity. A father who delights in hearing from his children and in giving them what they ask for. And we learn this through how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. This is an important passage, one that I think we need to not miss. So what is prayer? Simple definition. Talking to God. Simple as that. Are there magic words? Do we got to use the King James English? No. This is simply talking to God. One, one definition I found is prayer is the divinely appointed means through which we communicate to God and advance His kingdom. That's not bad. But it's just simply communication. It's relationship with God. And if we think about it, you know, one of the things that's cool about Jesus is whenever Jesus is teaching, He's always got like some bigger picture in mind. And I think the overarching picture is that He wants us to know this God, the Father. He wants us to know Him. And He can't help Himself. But every time he teaches, he's saying, God the Father's like this. God the Father's like this. God the Father's like this. And he's doing that here. Because here's the thing. Prior to the existence of the first human, before God created anything, Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father for all of eternity have been communicating and enjoying it. Just let that sink in. God the Father and the Son have been communicating for all of eternity and have joy from it. So when Jesus says, Father, 
hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come. This is him saying, I want you guys to see and feel what I have been feeling for all of eternity. He wants to bring us into that relationship. So prayer is learning to enjoy God for who he is. This prayer, like I said, is the shorter version of the Matthew prayer, the one that you're probably all familiar with. Luke shortened it, maybe because Jesus spoke through it several times. Maybe Jesus just summed it up this time. But either way, the Holy Spirit puts it here for us to teach us five things. Two declarations and two requests are included in this prayer. We see a simple layout. We see, first thing is that Father. We have a Father. We see the first declaration, hallowed be your name. That means to worship the Father. The second declaration, your kingdom come, means that the Father is a king and it's a part of a kingdom. The first request, give us this day our daily bread, is a material provision from the Father. The second request, forgive us our debts, is the pardon of the Father, our spiritual need. And then finally, the third request, lead us not into temptation. This is our moral need, the protection of the Father. So we see this layout, but what does this say exactly about God the Father? And how does that then shape how we are to pray? Well, let's walk through the passage. So here we go, starting in the first verse. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. So the first thing we see is that Jesus prayed often. There's at least six recorded prayers prior to this one, and we don't know which one the disciples are referring to. It could be another one. The disciples say, hey, we see you doing this prayer thing. Can you teach us to pray? When he had finished, I like that they let him finish. One of his disciples said to him, now notice this is a disciple asking this, not somebody who's just following Christ around, not somebody who was liking him for his gifts. This is a disciple. This means a pupil of Jesus, someone that Jesus has said, you come follow me, I'm going to teach you. This is a prayer for God's children. And we'll get into that in a little bit more. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Calling him Lord says, you are an authority. You are over us. You know. So teach us. John the Baptist's disciples were well known for their prayer and their fasting. Now notice that the disciples are treating this prayer as a learned experience. Now there is always a time to cry out to the Lord. You don't have to, if, if you're in excruciating pain or something terrible has happened, you don't have to walk through this prayer. You just cry out to the Lord. But that's not where most of us live. Most of us live in the day-to-day, we need to be praying and we need to be communicating with the God, our God the Father. And so he's saying, this is something you can learn. And Jesus' response is that. Notice that they say, not how to pray, but teach us to pray. And that's important. This is not a how-to. This is a, who are you praying to? What is this prayer that you are doing? So Jesus responds in verse 2. He says, when you pray, say. Now notice, this is not if, but when. So there's an expectation here. Jesus is saying, if you pray, this is what you should do. He says, when you're going to pray. Go, do, go pray. It's as close to a command as we can get. When you pray, say, Father. So the first thing we see is that we are to call on God as our Father. Jesus introduces the Father to us. He starts there. He focuses our prayer. It doesn't matter if you have big, flowery, amazing prayers with all of this theology if you don't know who it is you're talking to. That's an important thing. 
See, in the Old Testament, the word father is used many times for God, about 15 times, and not once is it in a prayer. In the New Testament, in the Gospels alone, it is used over 160 times, and many times it's listed in prayer. See, the idea is is that the barrier is broken. We can now be a part of God's family. We can be His children. So we can call on Him as Father. The word Father in the Greek is the word pater, or in Aramaic is Abba, which implies intimacy. It implies closeness. Not something far off, but somebody close. Now, have you ever wondered, God the Father... Does that just mean that everybody, all humans are his children? Actually, no. God only has one child, one biological heir, and that is Jesus. He's of the same nature and essence as God. So he is the sole child of God. So then what what about us? How, How can we call him father? Well, we have to be adopted in. And this is the amazing the amazing fact of the gospel is that we're not something outside. We have been brought into the family. We are adopted siblings of Jesus Christ. We are now a part of God's family. And we can only relate to them, to Him as Father because of what Jesus did on the cross. Because see, there are two families on earth. There's the family that worships the, that, that follows the Father of Satan, and there's the family that follows the Father God. And they will do the will of their Father. And we want to be children of God, not children of the devil. Now, don't take my word for this. This is throughout the Bible, especially in Romans 8, verse 15, Galatians 4, 6, John 1, 12, and many others. This idea of the children of God being adopted in, we are grafted in. So starting with the Father helps us to know and focus correctly that this is all about God's glory. It's all about making Him look as great as He is. But there's more to it than that. Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. God is delighted to hear our prayers. When we are communicating with Him, it brings Him joy. It makes Him feel pleasure. See, we struggle with this because for some reason we have a hard time trusting God the Father. Like we can kind of resonate with Jesus. You know, He's born in the manger. He was a human. But God the Father just kind of seems distant. And sometimes we kind of doubt that He has our best in mind. We kind of, okay, Lord, Your will, but can it also include mine? Right? That's kind of our mindset. But look at Jesus in this. Jesus doesn't struggle with this. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus submits to the Father. He had said he was going to do it earlier in his ministry, but then does it when he's staring down the barrel of the crucifixion. He says, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus doesn't struggle with trusting God because he knows God. And he's known God for all of eternity. He spent eternity getting to know him. And He wants us to go, okay, you know me, you've seen me, I've died on the cross for you, you've seen my life, do what I'm doing. Trust God the Father. He can do it. You are an adopted, you are my adopted siblings, Jesus is saying. We want you to know the Father like I do. So our first point is that we are adopted into God's family. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be adopted into our to God's family. What does that mean for us as we go about our day? Well, Jesus answers us in the first two declarations where He tells us our purpose. 
You know, nothing small, just why we exist, right? He's telling us, why do you exist on earth? And he goes right into it. First declaration, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. Now, this is one of those words, it, it, it implies worship. The, uh, the word hallowed is not a word that anybody's going to use today unless they're quoting this psalm. Uh, this is a word that was introduced to this prayer 400 years ago, and it's stuck. Everybody's memorized it, so they've all just keep using it, and you go through, what does hallowed even mean? All right, we're not, like I said, we're not using that. So hallowed means to sanctify. Okay, that's another churchy word. Okay, holied. Uh, okay, still another church. Honored, glorified, lifted up, made to be as great as it is. So when we say, hallowed be thy name, hallowed be your name, we are saying, your name is as that great and it needs to be that great. We're saying it should be up there. This is what the angels saying. Glory to God in the highest. They were hallowing God's name. See, this pattern of prayer that he's given us is both a crutch, a road, and a walking lesson for us. It's telling us God's more important. God is what matters. Before we ever get to asking for anything, we've got to start with God is the thing. He's the most glorious thing. So we hallow His name. We lift it up. Now names in this time period, when this was written, stood for a whole lot more than us. Our names are, oh, they just sound good with our last name, or I know somebody who had that name, or it's just a cute name. But in this time, this summarized a person's character. It was the culmination of who they were. Now we know that, obviously, God's full character cannot be summarized in a name. The Bible tries. There's several hundred names for God. But ultimately, God's name is to be lifted up. See, what Jesus is telling us is He's telling us how to have real joy. He's telling us the designer of the universe made us for one thing, and that is to glorify God. And when we do that, that's when we are, we're doing what we're made for. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So we see the Father wants us to enjoy life, and He knows the only way to enjoy it is when we have God in the correct perspective. God is first. God is to be glorified. So, He's our Father. But so much more than that, He's God overall. He's He's adopted us. We've been adopted up, right? Talk about marrying up. We got adopted up, right? All of creation was made to worship Him. So, why isn't it yet? Why is creation, why are the rocks not crying out? Why is that not happening? Well, Jesus explains that in the second declaration. Because He says, not yet. Your kingdom come. Three little words. Big, big uh, importance. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6.33. So what is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is God's power over God's people in God's place. What does that mean? Well, what it means is there's an already not yet part, right? So it's like, it's like we're saved, but we're not saved yet. Because we still have to die, and then we're saved. Unless the Lord comes back, and then there's a whole other thing there, right? But it's the already not yet. The same thing goes for the kingdom. The New Testament says the kingdom of God's at hand. And then it also says, but the kingdom of God's coming. Did you forget what you said at the beginning of that sentence? The kingdom of God is here, but it's coming. Well, yes, it's both. So there's a tension here, right? We see this, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So we're God's children now, but we're not yet God's children. 
Not quite looking like him, right? So there's this tension here. And what it is, is Jesus is here. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is broken into creation, but it's still veiled. And at the end of time, the veil is going to be gone and we'll get to see it exactly how he wanted it to be. He wants it to be. So this is us when we say your kingdom come. Not only is it declaring that he's a king and he's in charge, it's also saying we want that end to come about. Jesus, can you, can you, can you bring it now? We're ready for the end. This is the scaffolding. We can kind of make out what it's going to look like, but we can't quite see it yet. The Bible helps us with this. Because the kingdom is ultimately not a place. The kingdom is a relationship. The kingdom exists in every single one of your heart that is devoted to Christ. And so we are kingdom representatives. Because the kingdom is an already not yet, when we say, your kingdom come, we're actually praying for four things. We're praying a prayer of destruction, a prayer of construction, a prayer of conversion, and a prayer of completion. So let me show you what I mean by that. The first thing is the prayer of destruction. This is Satan's kingdom, and it is in the process of being destroyed. It's the process of being wiped out. Now, D-Day has already happened. Jesus has come. He's died on the cross. The battle is mostly over, but we still have the mopping up. That's what's going on now before Christ comes again. Jesus said to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So turn that into a positive. The gates of hell are going to be destroyed. God's kingdom is going to win. So that's the prayer of destruction. The prayer of construction is like he said there in Matthew 16, 8, I will build my church. He's going to make his church. He's going to make this kingdom happen. It's a prayer of conversion because there are people outside of this room, outside of these walls, outside of a, ch- of, of a church, who do not yet know that there's an opportunity to be one of God's children. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. The Bible calls this conversion. We need to, we need to con- convert. When we're saying kingdom come, convert everyone that needs to be converted. Get them into the kingdom. And then finally, completion. A prayer of completion for God's kingdom. God, come and finish this. Habakkuk 2.14 says, The fullness of the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. The last prayer of the Bible, Revelation 22, the final words of the Bible, Come, Lord Jesus. That's a prayer. Come and finish. Be done. So, nowhere else is it any clearer than in these three words that this is not magic words. You know, saying certain words to get God to do our thing, that's magic. That's not what these are. Instead, this is us praying that God will get our will in line with His will so that our prayers will actually be effective. Lord, Your kingdom come in my life. Lord, Your kingdom come in my family. Lord, Your kingdom come in my church. Lord, Your kingdom come in my city and in this world. So these two declarations have made us get our our, our path back to the right path. Okay, like the sailing ship, that if you don't do constant adjustments every single moment, every single day, you're sailing towards London and you end up in South Africa. That's what this is doing. This is riding the ship and putting it the right direction. Ultimately, God's glory is ultimate. It's praying like this, Lord, I'm financially troubled. I ask that you bring me relief from my financial troubles. But it is more important that I see your glory than that I be delivered. 
It is more important that others see your glory than me being delivered. Wow, that's a scary prayer, isn't it? Because we want to say, Lord, take it away, take it away. I want, to, I want the financial troubles gone. But when we write ourselves with, Lord, maybe your kingdom will come in more power if I go through this. So this opening prayer, this opening of the prayer, the address and the two declarations show that this is not just a, a thing we do. It's just an activity. Oh, we're just going to pray. Instead, it is saying this matters for the king of the universe. This is the king's kingdom. We are adopted royalty. There are all kinds of resources on prayer. Our library has a whole shelf of them. I have more books than I need, so if you want some from me, I'll give you a book on prayer. But they're ultimately just empty words. If we don't know who it is we're praying to, the God of the universe, the King, our Father, is who we are praying to. And when we get this, it changes us. So, summarize where we've been. God is our Father. He is the God. He is the King. We are adopted siblings of Jesus. We are adopted royalty. Now, this is all so big, God is running the universe. He's the King. I know kings have really important jobs, I think, that they have to do. They're out doing their thing. What about us? I'm pretty insignificant. Does He care? Does He, does he care about my little desires and needs? Jesus' answer is, yes, He does. Look at the first request. He gives us permission to ask Him for something. He could have just stopped there. Just pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done, right? But instead, it's your daily bread. So this is what He says. He says, give us each day our daily bread. This means He's a good Father. He wants to meet our material needs. That's our first need He covers. Now, this idea of divine provision, God providing, is throughout the Bible. One of my favorite passages is from Psalm 145. He says, The eyes of all look to you, Lord. You give them food in due season. You open your hand and you, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. This, this is like the manna in Exodus when the bread came down out of heaven and they had bread as much as they could eat. So this shows that we are not ultimately self-sufficient. We need Him. Every day, our daily bread. Every day, so our daily. He's, he's getting the idea that you need it every single day. Ultimately, everything comes from Him. So we should, and we can, and we need to cast all our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. We can cast it. You know, we have a new year coming up. What's it going to hold for us? People are anxious about what's coming. Cast those on the Lord. Why? Because He personally cares for each and every one of you. Every hair on your head, He knows. So we can approach Him with confidence. And we can be confident that if we need it, He's going to provide it. We can be content with what we have. How foreign is that to our world? What a compelling testimony. When we can say, I don't need the latest this or the latest that or more of this. I have all I need because I have God. And I know He's going to meet my needs. Godliness with great contentment is great gain. 
Now, Jesus doesn't want us to miss the fact that even though he's got all these big things, he does care for our individual things. Later on in chapter 11, he says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's saying, I'm going to provide for you. And you're like, okay, but it's the Holy Spirit. That's still a churchy thing. Okay, but get what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, I'm going to provide for your biggest need. Because by showing you I provide for the biggest need, you're going to know I'm going to take care of your smallest needs. So bother Him. Go to Him. Take your basic needs to Him. Because He's already provided for your greatest need. Give us this day our daily bread. So He's a good Father who is also God. We are His adopted children who seek His extended kingdom. He will provide for all of our material needs. But is that our greatest need? And see, what Jesus does here is Jesus actually doesn't start off with our greatest need. Instead, He starts with what we think is our greatest need, and then He gets to our greatest need, which is the forgiveness of our sins. And then He tells us how we're going to be able to do that. So the forgiveness of our sins. And forgive our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. He's a good Father, and so He meets our spiritual needs. He pardons us. Now, I think of a couple different passages. One is, is the, the Luke 5 passage with the paralytic man. Let me, re, let me retell you the story. So Jesus is sitting there teaching, and some friends bring this paralytic man in front of him and lay him down in front. It's obvious that this man has not walked. His legs are atrophied. He's laying on a mat. He cannot move. And Jesus goes, puts his hand on him. Everybody's expecting something amazing. And he goes, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know if Jesus pauses at this point or how long the pause is. But I feel like everybody's kind of going, and he fixes his legs. You know, there's, there's something else going on there. But Jesus goes, wait a sec, I said I forgave his sins. Isn't that a lot easier? Because there's, there's no sinometer, and it went to zero. Yes, he gets to go to heaven now, right? There's no way to know that this man's sins have been forgiven just by Jesus saying it. He's not standing in front of God to see whether he gets in or not. Instead, Jesus goes, that's the easy thing to say. Healing him is the hard thing. Okay, I'll heal him. Boom, and he heals him. And he goes, see, now you know that I forgave his sins as well. Jesus was teaching. But he was teaching something else besides teaching the Pharisees that Jesus had the power over sins. He was teaching that there is the most important thing, and that is to have your sins forgiven. Because whether that man ever stood in this life, he is going to stand one more time. Where is he going to stand? He's going to stand before God, and he'll either be in his sins, or his sins will be on Christ. And that's the picture of the Gospel. And so by this man being told that his sins were forgiven, Jesus meets his ultimate need, the need that every single one of us has before we can get any of our other needs taken care of. In our call to worship, Christian read from Psalm 103, Praise the Lord, O my soul, forget not all His benefits. David lists seven things, but he starts with what he deems is the most important. He says, The one who forgives all our sins. Our sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That is the best news ever. Jesus did not stay in the manger. He went to the cross and He did not stay in the grave. He rose again because the sacrifice was accepted by God. That is the picture of the Gospel. That's what we all need. And if you haven't done that, do it now. So, Jesus doesn't just leave us there, because again, He's a great teacher. He doesn't say, okay, you know, you've been forgiven. He says, here's a way you can tell whether you've been forgiven. 
Do you forgive others? See, the fruit that proves whether or not we are forgiven is how well do we forgive others when they hurt us? Now, this passage can be misunderstood. We can think, well, if we forgive others, then God will forgive us, right? Like we can trick God, right? We kind of think of it as like this little equation, like if I, if I just forgive so-and-so, then God will forgive me. And there's no repentance. There's none of that. It becomes this work, right? That we do this thing and God now is, oh, tricked me into doing it. Oh, those darn Christians, right? That's not what God's doing up there. It's also not saying that I'm forgiven, but if I have one time that I don't forgive somebody, then I lose my salvation. That's not what it's saying. Both of those are extremes that are the wrong direction. Instead, what this is saying is this is saying when we have been satisfied by God's mercy, we can't help but forgive people of these little insignificant things. Because when you've been born again, you cannot act and be like you were before you were born again. So it's not forgive us our debts because we forgive others. It's forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others. I'm reminded of the parable of the unforgiving servant who has a huge amount of money. One scholar said it would be equivalent to $10 million today. So he's got $10 million. Anybody want to sign up for that much debt? I didn't think so. So $10 million. He goes, please forgive me. Let me, I can't pay it back. Would you forget it? Write it off. And the guy goes, sure, I'll write it off. Let's him go. What does he do? He goes down the street to his friend and he goes, I need that money I loaned you. All $18 of it. Guy doesn't have it. Yeah, throw him in jail. No forgiveness. Jesus' point was, those who've been forgiven much, forgive much. See, our Father in heaven has forgiven us the most grievous sin, the worst offense, the biggest hurt. And that was to not acknowledge Him as God. Romans 1 says the most obvious thing in the universe is that there is a God. He's written it everywhere. And yet we choose to not acknowledge Him. That is the most grievous sin against the most beautiful being in the universe. And yet God goes, I'll forgive you of that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. How can we not forgive the smallest thing on earth? Because nothing compares to that. So that's what this passage is saying. He is a loving Father whose worship is something we can join all of creation in doing as we look to grow His kingdom. We do this by relying on Him for our material needs and our spiritual needs. But that's not it. Jesus doesn't just leave us there. He says, this is how we're going to do it. He says, I'm going to lead you in a different direction. So we get to our third and final request. Lead us not in temptation. Protection. He's given us protection. He meets our moral needs. Now, this is one of those times where they take a negative and they're actually saying, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to do the positive. So what's the opposite of this? Lord, lead us into righteousness. Lead us into a moral life. Lead us into goodness, is what he's saying. This can also be misunderstood. People read this and they go, well, God leads us into sin. Well, that's not what it's saying. We need to look at the rest of the Bible because the rest of the Bible does not support that. James actually says it pretty, pretty clearly. Somebody was struggling with it then too. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what is this saying? Well, there's other passages that will help us understand it. I think the best understanding is to say, protect us from the power of sin, Lord. Protect us from it. Like in Luke twenty two forty, pray that you will not enter into temptation. 
Matthew 26, watch and pray that you will not enter into temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So lead us not into temptation is more of a protect us, Lord. I know sin is powerful. Sin is not to be trifled with, to be played with, to be toyed with, to flirt with. Because I am weak. So Lord, I'm asking... Help me escape the trap. Even better, Lord, take me a different direction. I don't want to have to defeat the temptation. Let's just avoid it altogether. That's what this prayer is saying. God, help us so that we do not let the, tempt- the testing become sin. Lord, I can't get through this test without You. I need Your power. I need Your presence. I need Your protection. Now, we know by our own experience, especially with the new year coming up, and all the resolutions that we'll keep for a couple days. We know that starting a diet or starting a new resolution, we don't have the willpower to change our willpower. Right? We're weak. We try, and sometimes they stick, but most of the time that's the exception. Our Father knows that. And apart from the Father in our life, from, apart from a relationship with the Father, temptation will always conquer us. We cannot fight sin without our Father. It's a lifelong struggle. Now, I'll go back to that 1 Corinthians verse because I left part of it off on purpose. Remember, it said, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tested, tempted beyond your ability. That's where I stopped. But there's more to it than that. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you will endure it. So catch that. Not only is he saying, you're going to get tempted, things are going to happen, I'm going to help you provide a way out because I'm right there with you. I'm going to go through it with you. So he is there. Our Father cares about us so much. Not only does he pardon us and protect us, but he provides the Holy Spirit to live inside of us to guide us in the right direction. So where we've been, our loving Father, our loving adopted Father, who is God, who is worshipped by all creation through His ever-growing kingdom, will provide for all of our needs, material, spiritual, moral, that's all of them, through a relationship with Him. Just like Jesus has had for all of eternity. How can we not want to pray to this, this God? How can we not want to? I think it's because we, it's too good to be true. I think it's because we don't want to believe it. So instead of making resolutions this year, let's get to know our Heavenly Father. And I think our prayer life will increase from three minutes a day as we begin to see who this God is. We can't help but talk to them. We can't help but want to communicate with Him. So I want to leave you with one final word. Now I've added this word to the prayer. Uh, I don't think it's heretical to add to the prayer because this is a word we use all the time. It's the word Amen. It's not in our version. It is in the other version. This is a word that from the Hebrew is pronounced Amen. They just took the Hebrew word and made it into an English word. So we don't really get the meaning of it. We just tag it on at the end. Is it just, go God, right? I'm done. That's not what it means. What it means is, so may it be. This is a declarative word. 
It's saying, I have confidence, so much confidence that this is going to happen. I just said it is. It is happening. So shall it be. It will be. So as we pray, and as we look at our prayers and we finish them, if we know the God we're praying to, when we say, Amen, so shall it be. Because it is the God that we know. It's the God that we trust. So let's finish with this last prayer. Father, so shall it be. Hallowed be your name. So shall it be. Your kingdom come. So shall it be. Give us this day our daily bread. So shall it be. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So shall it be. And lead us not into temptation. So shall it be. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for being a Father that cares for us and loves us and has adopted us into Your family. I pray, Lord, that we would rise up under that, that we would just live a life that is so dependent on our Heavenly Father who cares so greatly for us. Lord, thank You for sending Your Son so that we could see what it is like to to be a man, a human on earth who has that relationship, that communication. And so, Lord, I pray that we would long for that, that You would stir up in us the desire to have that close relationship, that communing with You. And Lord, that would lead to dynamic prayer lives that are not focused on the words that come out, but the relationship that we have established with You, whether we pray in private, in public, with our families, by ourselves, or in our heads, Lord. I pray for that relationship for each and every one of us. I pray for it for me, Lord. Grow that in each and every one of us. Help us to love You and know You so well that we will pray in line with Your will. So shall it be, Lord. Amen.